It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. My guest this week is Nadine Smith. Nadine is Global Director of Communications and Marketing at the Centre for Public Impact, which is run at the Boston Consulting Group. She used to work as a Director of Communications at the Institute for Government and has worked in a range of roles across Whitehall, before playing poacher turn gamekeeper and turning her eye to critiquing the business of government communications from the outside. This week we talk about government communications and whether trust in government is really declining. What does it take to build more legitimacy in government? And what's the future of government once we've got past Brexit? Nadine, thanks very much for joining me. Uh, You're very welcome. Great to have you here on Government vs. the Robots. Uh, You've got a really impressive CV. In fact, one of the CVs that I've looked at in my career and felt most envious of. So I'm really interested to kind of chat to you and pick your brains today. Okay. Um, We'll do a full career track after. (laughs) Before we get get going um, into some of the meat of things, can I ask you first off, like, why you think you became a professional communicator? When when you, if you think back to when you were younger, when were the times you realised you kind of had some of the skills you might need to be good at it? I didn't. I didn't know till much later. It, and actually, it wasn't until one day, probably in my late teens, that my father said to me that I used to come down in the evenings when they were having dinner parties and walk in and ask really awkward questions of people. I don't know, I think that makes me a very good communicator, actually. I think it just makes me really ballsy. And um, I used to walk into the dining room and just... Um, come up to the table and just start saying to people so why are you wearing that and why are you eating that and, and that's a very that's a very direct form of communication which I don't think I've lost it's not popular in all areas of life someone said to me yesterday it would take a very brave institution to employ you um, and and I and, they, and she said and that's a compliment to, and so so if you look down my CV and you look at the places that have employed me it might surprise you that most of it my time has been spent in Whitehall being the direct communicator I am I think it's had its pluses though I mean I think that the directness which can sometimes feel a bit too much for some people has been most most of the time very welcome at the tables in Whitehall in my career much to my surprise um, find a minister that wants to just cut through the rubbish get to the point and know what on earth is going on I'm your person and that 
is difficult because when you're in the civil service, you have to get on with people. You have to collaborate and you have to understand what they're trying to do and where where they're coming from. And I think that bit of me has come a, came a bit later in my career in Whitehall. I think I went in a bit full on. Um, then I think in my first big job in, in working in the civil service, I was working with an amazing uh, lady who was the secretary to the BSE inquiry. And she said to me something like, you know what, Nadine, it's great that you laugh so much. But when you laugh, maybe just laugh a little less. <laughs> and I remember saying, why? And I was in my early 20s. And she said, because, because you're 23. And she said, and I was so horrified by what she said at the time. But I took it on board. And um, so I thought I'm very loud and quite brash and I laugh a lot. Um, but actually, when you're really young and you're within a room of 50, 60 year old people, it can actually make you come across as quite giggly girly. So I had to kind of work on that a bit and just learn how to, to strike the right pose, you know, look more uh, like I'm listening, which I always was, but I never possibly looked like I was, but really look like I'm listening and and just pay real attention to to the way I communicate. So it looks like I was a born communicator looking at my CV, but it's something that communicators learn about all the time about themselves. And some just need to just come to life a bit more and just say what they mean. And, and some just need to, like me, just understand the environment the context the pressures the people around you and still be that person that's blunt to, to the point uh giving the good advice that you do but um but I think possibly not in the way I did when I was 23 24 25 possibly I wouldn't looking back I probably wouldn't do that again that's probably a good point for me to kind of ask my next question which is around you know you you worked on I think the SOAM inquiry uh, BSE inquiry then in the cabinet office um and and wider Whitehall and I have since kind of gone from the inside to the outside and are looking in organisations looking at the way that government works yeah. what's changed in that time in your view in the kind of government communication space do you think you would have would a, would a 23, 24 year old Nadine have the same challenges now in Whitehall and what's changed in the bigger picture in terms of the communications challenges people face I think in many ways things haven't changed in terms of the challenges the communicator faces in trying to really ensure that they um, are working first they're working as a civil servant. Um, they have to understand the civil service and everything that is Whitehall, the code that they have to work to, the the money that they have responsibility for. And then if you're a communicator, you're part of a communications directorate if you're in Whitehall in that in that sense and you're in that sort of traditional environment. And and you still have all of the all of the pressures of line management and and, and um integrity and streaking truth to power, which is sounds easier than it is. Um so all of those things remain the same. I think the civil service has probably, it's probably what it's admired for, actually. Sometimes people criti- criticise it for it. But the, through all of the uh, you know, ups and downs of life and all of the big shocks and blows that the civil service has seen, in some respects, it remains largely the same. But that's also the enemy of the good as well. So in the sense that it's so hard to be anything different in the civil and to really change things. But in communications, there hasn't just has not been the choice to stay static and still. So you know, they there is a much bigger focus than there was when I was in Whitehall, even in just the last seven to ten years that I've been more out of it. A much bigger and closer focus on digital. You know, gov.uk has been, you know, 
government says it's like one of its, it's like a revolution for them. I mean, it's not to anyone else looking at it from the outside. I mean, you just can't believe it that you go to seminars and they're talking about, you know, gov.uk and the, the, the government digital service and the way it's working. It's some kind of major revolution. Um, but it is. But and, and I think that has transformed commun- the way communicators have to think now. They do have to think across the channels. Um, but I don't know whether has changed much beyond that. I mean, there is now a government communication service. There is a, and there has been since, well, several years now. I mean, probably since the days of Hal James has been a permanent secretary for um, communications. Um, and, and I think that's really helped communications become, be seen as a lever of government. And I think indeed they describe communications as one of four or five levers that government has. Please don't ask me what the others are. Um, we can probably guess, but and so I think that's helped to to bring communications to the table in as a, as a profession that is as respected as policy. Um, possibly, I think could be that could still do with a little bit of work, but that is certainly a, a bigger change. Whereas when I was in Whitehall, I didn't feel the communications directorate necessarily always had the respect of the minister um, and the special advisors, but. So I therefore worked really hard that I did. But actually, it was much better if there isn't just one person in a communications group that a minister wants to see. I worked with one minister in charge of the cabinet office who just didn't want to see anyone else. And it was exhausting. And it wasn't good because actually, I don't know everything. And and I was having to you know, make sure that I was collaborating with my team and understanding what they would, they would do. But then it felt really bad to be the one walking in the office. I wanted to give them the opportunity to be at the table, to have to take that seat at the table. But, you know, sometimes ministers become quite obsessed with one person. But I think the professionalisation of communications and now that there is actually an annual plan that is aligned to government um, priorities and that people can see and read, I think is really kind of, I think, I think it, it's, it stands, it's, it, it does, the communications group and the communications directors are, are seen to be much more a key, key player in everything that government does. So I think it's changed in that way. It's funny you're saying about um, communications needing to kind of be recognised as a, as a key player equal with policy. And I think, I know not everybody listening is a communications professional, so we will move on quickly before sure. this becomes a total comms chat. But the, it's quite easy to develop an inferiority complex in comms roles, I think, because often, particularly in smart institutions, because people seem to sometimes think of you less and you have to work hard. And I think that sometimes is a professional and personal challenge for people to kind of get beyond that sense of people not quite recognizing the worth of what you do and I think that's something that I've definitely felt a lot of communications professionals have shared and I would be interested to know whether other sort of professional disciplines feel the same about their disciplines as well um you've written that there are more opportunities to communicate for for people today than ever before when you say that do you mean that there are more channels to communicate through do you mean that government's doing more stuff or do you mean that there's kind of a greater scope for creativity what's what lies beneath that I think that there's just it's everywhere you know we 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 wake up with iPhones and we are communicating through a, a whole new network and you know we might not think of ourselves as communicators particularly but most people are plugged in somewhere to either it could be they like to listen to a podcast that they never used to do that before um it could be you know their Facebook and Twitter and all of Snapchat or whatever, you know, there are just, most of us probably have, and I'm sure there's statistics on this, um, as a minimum, two 
social media platforms on our phone on our homepage you know and and and, and their favorites um and that is incredible i mean the power of that is amazing i mean there is it's also frightening of course um but yes the opportunity to communicate from government has never been so easy and yet so hard um and it is really difficult because i think there is going back to the previous conversation we we're just having where government hasn't quite adapted yet is it's still in telling mode you know it's it's social media tends to be yeah it's getting a bit more chatty i've noticed that's nice but it's not really using social media yet to to really understand what people want um or feel or think and i don't think that social media should be seen as oh well if that's how people feel and think on social media that must be it not everybody will share what they really think on social media but i think it's could it's still got a long long way to go before governments really using social media as a way to connect more personally with people and we know that the thing about social media is if you're not personal and you're not um authentic um, and you sound like somebody who's a spokesperson on the other end or you sound like you're just giving an automated response just slowly you you just start to feel less and less connected to that person to that institution as it were so actually using social media is not necessarily a good thing if you're not going to do it very well um and you know i remember back in the day when twitter began and we were having a conversation in the cabinet office about whether or not a certain secretary of state should have his own twitter account um and and the idea was that somebody in comms was going to run it and it was just like, are you? I was just like, are you kidding? Like, there's no way. Even back then, I I could see that would be wrong, um, and and I don't and, and not and that didn't happen um, for the individuals particularly. But there are still some individuals out there. It's a very well known, high profile people who have other people operating their Twitter and social media accounts. Because I have spoken to people and said, how on earth are you on Twitter every two to three minutes whilst also being in Westminster in the Commons and of course they're not they go oh, I've got people that do that for me not sure that's that's right mm. I think that authenticity is a word that crops up all the time on government versus the robots and hopefully we're going to have a chance to mm-hmm. explore that more in in coming episodes but the something that you've sort of started to touch on there around the need for authenticity in communications and the kind of wider social media ecosystem as it's grown up and and come to kind of maturity in the last few years both of which have led to something we've talked a lot about in recent episodes around fake news and trust in institutions and so on. And to fast forward to your present role at the Centre for Public Impact, one of the things that you're doing is uh, is looking really closely at how governments find and build and maintain legitimacy. And I feel really strongly that the, the kind of heraldry of government, which has served it so well for so long, the, you know, the, the stamps and the and the the kind of well, the heraldry. There's no other word. Mm-hmm is really losing its power and people are kind of less and less um, likely to feel that they need to respect the institution in the way that they used to. So Mm. can you tell me why you felt that it was so important for the sense of public impact to look at legitimacy? Well, I guess it depends how you define legitimacy. I think it's a difficult word and we found it hard to take... In some countries, we found it easy to take that word in. Um, In others less easy because there's an assumption that there is already some legitimacy if people 
have voted for you. Um, but that's one way of looking at legitimacy, and there and there are there are there is more than one definition of it. The definition that we like to think about at the Centre for Public Impact is one whereby a government needs to continuously work at strengthening legitimacy. So it's not something that you you have or you don't have. It is something that is built. It's something that can weaken, um, and it needs to be looked after every day. Now that. Is, takes us into a slightly different terrain when it comes to the topic of legitimacy. Um, I'm not sure I do think that le- institutions have lost legitimacy. I think that some of the core values that those institutions were built on still hold. I think that we've forgotten what they are, actually. Um, and when, if you look at what happens in, a, in the country when there is a time of crisis... It could be there has been a a, a terror threat um, or something that is a huge health crisis or or something terrible. I mean, I don't want to start listing what they all could be. I think people do tend to, they, they feel safe and secure in the knowledge that we have those institutions. I've always been fascinated and oddly drawn to crisis in government. So you can sort, you talked about my inquiry work for example and I, I seem to thrive on it you know petrol crisis years ago I was like putting my hand up first let's go let's do this and I think I do because I know our institutions are at their best in the t- a time of crisis they work together well they collaborate across the silos and those people who don't normally have a voice suddenly are really important so whatever part of government you work in you're probably going to find yourself suddenly very, very valuable at this time. And your voice, and suddenly the hierarchy goes, um, except for at COBRA, of course, where it's extremely hierarchical. But 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 in other outside of COBRA, you suddenly see government at its best. And then the crisis calms down and it goes back to normal. Um, and I think, gosh, you know, during that time, the legitimacy of government was extremely strong um and what were the characteristics of that and why don't we work like that every day we shouldn't have to have a crisis to be able to speak more directly to people in a language that they understand have that calm human face of a crisis because most people are living at some point or have had at some point in their life some kind of crisis and any time of the day someone's facing a crisis and in a time of crisis you need that more human government so if you take um for example on social media the the way in which elements on twitter at least responded to the novichok situation and there was quite a substantial number of people who were suggesting that this was there was more to this than meets the eye. They were buying some fairly obvious Russian propaganda in a way that I don't feel like it was it was as much part of the public consciousness that there were a group of dissenting voices. Say something happened in the nineties in a pre Twitter era, whether you would have had such a significant rump of scepticism that was able to kind of seep into the public conversation in the way that scepticism around something like Salisbury emerged. Yeah. And that to me suggests, that to me suggests the need to, to watch out on the legitimacy f- front. And I wonder whether you would accept that where, where governments need to strengthen and consistently work at their legitimacy, whether the need to do that is perhaps more acute in the social media age than it has been prior. 
go back to the go back to the the Nova Shock point again. Yeah. What what was that about that that made you think? Well, this- the, I'm somebody who, if the security services say something, or if the government says mm. something, I tend to believe it. And I think most people in the country feel like that. And I'm a big believer in and have talked on this show many times about the power of government as mm-hmm. a sort of force for good. Yeah. But I saw in my Twitter feed mm. a significant amount of content of people really doubting what the government was saying. Um, and what particular message was it that you felt people were doubting? Oh, the Novichok came from Porton down. That you know, it was it was it was being done as a way of uh, creating the right political circumstances for Theresa May to benefit. And you know, I understand these theories are around these conspiracies are around all of the time. Yeah, but very exactly. rarely do do they seem to kind of. I don't think they seem to seep into the into into people's information streams as much yeah and that seems to be happening more now and to me and and also people are less likely to because some politicians are happy to bluster you know we've seen a lot of stuff around brexit which is debatable in its accuracy let's put it that way (laughs) that makes you less likely to trust i think that does make people less likely to trust even the people who are most inclined to trust are probably less likely to trust in this environment yeah i to an extent but i think you know there's always got to be a healthy amount of scepticism about what government's doing and saying. I've worked in government most of the time. You know, I've met people who are genuinely trying to do the right thing and their heart is in the right place. But there is a there is a face that they have to put on. And it's a very hard place to be, to be uh, in front of you know, the media questioned uh not sure where the next thing's going to come from it makes you look well dodgy i think you know you know, just, you know so i think i think the environment they're working in kind of slightly dehumanizes mm-hmm. them and you know behind that when you meet people most people working in government and and in political parties do have their heart in the right place and are human beings so i think it's not surprising that people doubt them i think it's a good thing for people to ask the questions nowadays i think the the tragedy is that our children aren't being taught in school on what values and foundations this country has been built on and um they're, they're being rushed through an education and a curriculum that means they come out at the other end and they can say that they would be quite happy to give up their right to vote if it meant they could have a home so there was an Australian survey um, that asked young people um, that question. And, and it was quite horrifying how ha- the high number of young people that said if it meant they could have a home and certainty about the future, they'd give up mm. the vote. Now, the older generation said, oh, they would say that, wouldn't they? Because they'd never fought a war. You know, they've grown up in this peacetime. Where they've eaten every, too many avocados. Even to, yeah, exactly. Smashed avocados on Saturday. So, um, so basically, that older people are saying they would say that, wouldn't they? Well, not necessarily. I think it's just that there's a few things going on. I think there is a lack of um, education around the importance of the, the fabric of society that we are, the values that we that we have fought for. Um, I don't say we have to start teaching, you know, John Stuart Mill, you know, in schools at seven years old. I think it's just going to freak everyone out. It's too, maybe just a bit too much. But I think that there's also a misunderstanding in government of why I think government's just forgotten as well why it's there sometimes and I think gets caught up in itself and and the day-to-day still and that hasn't changed in government for years and when I say to people who's thinking about what happens after Brexit 
well, I'd love someone to click to write in and tell us who, because I haven't found anyone who's actually looking at this yet. So I think the public have every right to be very sceptical. But I think there is also a deep respect for some of the institutions that we have had for a very long time. I would say that those are probably safe for many, many years to come. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So what are the basic building blocks of legitimacy for government institutions? And are they, are they straightforward? Well, we went around the world and we asked ordinary people who don't normally listen to podcasts like this um, what they think is legitimacy in the 21st century. So we've spoken to indigenous communities in Canada and businesses in India and kids in Brixton and you know we've been we've we've, we've traveled a bit around the world and we've also had people who've been amazing in becoming the center of public impact legitimacy champions holding conversations like this themselves and what was amazing is it no matter where we were there wasn't a sense that government as we knew it was was over or the institutions were dead but there was a particular sense that something human had gone. Um, and it wasn't just because of the rise of robots and AI. This is something they felt has happened for quite some years, that, that they wanted to find a more human government. And then when we bum-picked that and we said, well, well, how can they do that? Like they are humans and they're in government and they wanted to work in government and they probably have a public service ethos that's very strong. People said, well... They just need to show they have some empathy. And that seems to be the the word of the century so far. And, and this is coming from ordinary citizens. This isn't people who've studied empathy. Um, and, and empathy to them is somebody who actually feels to them as if they understand what 
they're going through and how life is. And as I said, when when politicians are in front of the media, they become robots, you know, and, and, and they, they, they put on their game face and they look like they're worried they're going to forget the next line or the next statistic. Um, and that, to them, makes them think that policy can't be right because you don't sound like you understand. And we don't have enough conversation about the realities of life with the people who are living those lives in a more public space. So a minister will say, well, I have my surgeries. I'm an MP. I canvass. I, you know, I campaign and I have my surgeries. And But the everyday dialogue isn't visible to me. It's not visible to them. They don't know how to talk to their politicians. They think their politicians speak different language to them. When I spoke to young boys in Brixton, they said they wouldn't even know where to start. They would feel embarrassed because the language of politics and government is alien to them. They don't understand them. Um, and so, you you know, it, it is it is a problem that I think that politics is just becoming more and more highbrow and elitist in just the way it speaks you know and just the words it uses and the majority of people we speak to just don't speak like that it's interesting you say that because i know that a lot of people for a lot of people government legitimacy would be about transparency and accountability and quite highfalutin concepts which are important and also contain contradictions for government because the more transparent you are the more shit you can get from journalists because the more information you've given them and there's kind of some challenges in all of that Mm -hmm. but on the empathy front in particular what on earth can you do you know government bandwidth at the moment is totally captured by brexit let alone something as soft and non non-deliverable in a policy sense as empathy so what can you do to try and create a more human or empathetic government but i would say brexit was partly a result of a, a, lack, of, a lack of empathy, not just from the, not just from our government, but I think you know the institution that is the EU showed a complete lack of empathy. I, I would I would completely agree, and I completely agree on the point around empathy and humanity in government. Yeah. But what can you do when yeah. when when the the incentives within government are definitely not? You know, it might be in their best interests to focus on empathy, but they've also got to get stuff done. How do you find room and scope to do that? There are still people who in government have to run public services. And, you know, every day people are using them. They're coming into contact with our hospitals, with the job centres. Um, and just to name a couple. So government services that are largely controlled by central government have been unable to demonstrate empathy to the people it connects with at the front. So even if you said, but the politicians are worried about Russia and the politicians are worried about, you know, the net, where the next threat's coming from and Brexit and the negotiations, well, fine. Okay, you get on with that. Most people form their view of politicians and government in a couple of ways. So one we talked about, which was what they see on the TV. No idea what they're going on about. Okay, fine. Go into the job centre go and visit your local hospital, your social worker, your health visitor, your teacher. And what you see there is a very constrained, suffocated, um, stressed out, underpaid looking public service and doing their very, very best. And I suppose it all, you know, it's, I, Daniel Blake, is is the way is the is all I'll say, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Those people working in those job centres, dealing with people who've who've who have been dealt a bad hand, 
they are humans too and there's a reason why they behave the way they do back at people so they don't feel valued and I think I had a really interesting conversation about legitimacy in all places Singapore and somebody said in the Singaporean government it comes down to how you treat your services and the people that work in your civil service and if you don't treat them well and you don't value them they won't value your people and your people won't value you back. It's such a simple thing to say, but it's so true that I, for some reason, central government, particularly in this country, and it's very unusual for this country, still believes it knows everything about education and health. And just to take two examples, and, and housing. And, and I don't understand why central government still has people in their departments thinking they know what's best for a child in southeast london no let's go further you know up in newcastle you know i I don't i don't see how that happens and i know people who work in who have worked in that department who have left who've said the same thing to me no actually you're right they don't know um it's incredible that we have academies now but if they fail it's the department for education that has to deal with that why you know i mean i take it, i i think it's we we've got ourselves caught up in a situation whereby we think that command and control from the center over every aspect of our lives is the right thing to do but i think deep down we know we don't know what we're doing and and we're relying on the eyes and ears of people that are have vested interests are stressed beyond their belief beyond belief have to hang on to their jobs that's not a good way of understanding what's going on right out there in the real world. And I think that those channels of communication that come back to government have been stifled by this obsession with with me- me- metrics and measurement and even evidence-based policy, which is now constantly discussed, I think has even stifled new things happening in some respects because I don't think you can always have evidence that something might work and it might not work there but it might work somewhere else and how can you try something new if you're always relying on the evidence I think you have to have a number of things but there's still an obsession with command and control from the top and 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 a, and a metrics based way of making decisions about money coupled with a spending review process that is in itself completely flawed and just only perpetuates this siloed mentality in government and this kind of and siloed mentality in government means siloed mentality at the front line and people out there are having a complete nightmare and that's what i mean by a complete and utter lack of empathy mm. and when I think about command and control and the tendency of Whitehall towards command and control, something else that I know you've been looking at the Centre for Public Impact is the potential implications of artificial intelligence. Um, and it strikes me instinctively, although you may feel differently, that the the, the rise of AI is not likely to um, not likely to change the tendency for command and control in government. So how do you see AI and the implications of AI for the agenda around a human government? I think there's huge amounts of potential for AI. I'm not an AI machine expert, but I, from the studies that we've done and what, and what I've heard and seen, and we've only just got back from the um, Talent Global Digital Summit, there's incredible potential for AI to help people live better lives. Um, just one example I heard recently was the ability to be able to make better predictions about children who have learning difficulties. Now, we know the stress and anxiety that parents go through in not being able to be sure what's wrong 
with my child. If it was some, well, if you want to say what's wrong with it, I mean, if people always people say to to us as parents, what's wrong with your child? And we say, well, you we don't know. Um, what what do you think? And then they can't fathom it either. And then you you just feel. There's a, there's a huge relief that comes with knowing what's what it is that your child is experiencing. And often it doesn't come until someone can put a label on it. And it's very, very difficult when the way in which we think about children uh, learning difficulties is is tied up in you know people having to individually assess a child again and again and again and again and again and go no you don't tick that box whereas for AI has the potential to learn and understand many many more differentials of behaviors that could fall into the same category and can understand that a range of behaviors difficulties um that children are having can mean something um, and can can make sense of that much more easily. And I know that work's already happening. And I know that in Sweden, they are making very, very accurate predictions of children who will have reading difficulties, for example. Um, And I know, for example, that children with ADHD may display different behaviours to the ones that we have that code what that label is. Um, So I think there's huge potential in helping people and you know even in the medical profession obviously to read a scan or an MRI that takes you know time and AI can help us to do that and it frees up people to spend more time with citizens and therefore back to the empathy point how exciting that somebody who is a consultant that spends a lot of their time analyzing each and every scan that they get sent through for a brain tumor can now do that more quickly and spend more time with the patient talking about the care and the treatment plan they're going to have. So I think that is creating a more human government with the help of machines. I think where we've got to be careful, though, is that we don't really know what we're stepping into and everybody's getting very, very excited. Um, There's a lot of hype or horror around artificial intelligence. Sophie the robot. I mean, have you seen this, Sophie? Is this the one that gave evidence at the select committee? Yeah, I think so. I think she's just got a passport, hasn't she? She's living She's living her life. I, I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, you know, these sorts of things pop up. And then you've got the kind of doomsday kind of predictions. And I think we just don't have a very practical dialogue going on at the moment about artificial intelligence. So when I went to Tallinn, we, were, we produced a paper that actually looked at the behaviours that we have for legitimacy. So the work that I've done on legitimacy look, looked at the AI Um, the potential for AI and brought it together and said, can you build legitimacy into AI in a very practical way in government? And a lot of the behaviours that we describe in our Finding a More Human Government, which was our legitimacy report, around empathy, authenticity, valuing citizens' voices, co-creation, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, you can apply those behaviours directly to the AI question Mm. for government and come up with a practical action plan that means you can build AI systems that will help public services in a way that people understand, feel comfortable with and trust. And I'm not just talking about citizens and people. I'm talking about those people in the departments, in the services themselves and how they will feel about AI coming into their workplace. And right now there's a lot of fear and mistrust of from this coming from the staff. So actually those legitimacy behaviours we found will work for creating um, AI in government that's ra- practical, realistic and works for people as well. So I just encourage you to read it. 
There's your action plan. And on that note, I always try and end these podcasts on a kind of pragmatic uh, note that hopefully feels a little bit optimistic. But I'm going to ask you a slightly different question to the one that I tend to go out on because I, I really enjoyed your reflection at the start of this conversation about ways that you learned to kind of navigate the civil service environment. And I've often asked people what advice they would give to somebody who's just starting out or thinking mm. about how to try and make mm. a change in their own sphere of influence, whatever that might be. And for mm. people listening, they're different. Mm. What in your career are the things, the, the most common mistakes you've seen people make in the pursuit of change? And, and, and how would you suggest they avoid them? I think I've made some mistakes. So it might be maybe coming into government as I have. I'm not a typical civil servant. I don't look like one or talk like one particular. I know you think, well, what does a civil servant look like? But when I came into government... I felt really different and I didn't think that was a good thing. So I think if you're entering government and you you didn't go to a top elite university and you don't have white skin and you can't recite the philosophers by heart, that's okay. Actually, find that might be your strength. So find whatever it is that makes you feel self-conscious, make it your strength because government is crying out for different voices and diversity in government is a bit of a problem to put it mildly so so make sure you show yourself around the place you know um and and be unapologetic about where you come from make that your strength and be and smile about that um and don't be angry because i think i was for a few years because i kept being asked which college i went to and I thought they meant Polly and they meant which Oxford or Cambridge College did I, did I go to and whether I might be going skiing in February, you know, assuming that everybody goes skiing in February half. You know, it's just stuff like that, which is just so alienating and off-putting, actually. I've, I first thought I wasn't going to last very long. Um, but I think now it's possibly much more of a strength and so make the most of that. Nadine, that's a, it's a great point to finish on, not least because it gives me a quick chance to plug two previous episodes of the show. So we had James Ball on the other week and he was talking about his book Bluffocracy, where he talks about uh, politics, philosophy and economics at Oxford and the, the kind of prevalence of that in the British civil service. And I think you've just made a point that I think would follow on from some of the things he was saying quite nicely. And also um, we had Henry Timms on a little while ago talking about his book New Power, where he uh, said something which really stuck with me, which is that it, the problem isn't that people don't trust their institutions. The problem we've got is that our institutions don't trust people, people. I, that, that's and, absolutely right and i think that, that i've written about that myself yeah that's there in the, it's it's there in the episode new power but for today uh, thank you very much for trudging through the slightly miserable rain this morning and joining me up here in king's cross it's been great talking to you it's been great thank you so much cheers so that's all for this week one for the government geeks i'm sure you'll agree our next episodes will be coming live from conferences in Paris and London. If you've enjoyed this week's show, please do tell your friends about it, send a few emails, and you can follow us on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore V-S robots. My thanks as ever to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of this podcast, and we look forward to talking to you next time.